what are the phrases we've heard over and over and over again over the last two years? COVID-19, unprecedented, lockdown. The pandemic continues to affect our lives in different ways each and every day. But it's also affected the humanitarian sector in significant ways. COVID-19 has been and continues to be a humanitarian crisis in many parts of the world. It has strained health systems, which were already under pressure. It has created a spike in unemployment, and it has created ongoing economic uncertainty and stress. Add that to the burden that natural disasters have continued to have. Tropical Cyclone Harold hit Vanuatu in April 2020, at the same time as borders were closing, resulting in a collapse of the tourism industry. Heavy rains and winds of more than 200 kilometres an hour. Cyclone Harold is battering Vanuatu. The Category 5 storm destroyed homes and buildings as it made landfall in Espiritu Santo, the country's largest island. I'm Beth Eggleston, and this is I Think You're On Mute. In our last episode, we talked about the origins of the Humanitarian Horizons Research Program and how Cyclone Pam helped shape Australia's commitment to being a better humanitarian partner. Now we venture to Tropical Cyclone Harold, which showed us what it looks like when you combine a global pandemic with a humanitarian emergency. Real-time analysis of humanitarian response as they're happening can help create better outcomes on the ground. We saw it in 2018 when earthquakes rocked the highlands of PNG and the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. And we'll take you back through that real-time analysis in today's episode. On April 6, 2020, Vanuatu was hit with the Category 5 Tropical Cyclone Harold. Since 1980, Vanuatu has worked with international partners on its humanitarian emergencies. In 2020, planes carrying emergency supplies also carried the risk of bringing COVID-19 into the country, which at that point had reported zero cases of the virus. I spoke with Siale Ilolohia, Executive Director of the Pacific Islands Association of Non-Governmental Organisations, or Piango, about the TC Harold response. Man, it's feel like it's been a long time ago, but it's not. It has just been recently... Uh, what 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 I find that perhaps TC Harold because it was it was it happened uh, during COVID nineteen uh, two things one is that it has uh, kind of bring back the humanitarian uh, response system to the attention of um, of our various government and I'm not just talking about Vanuatu Fiji. Tonga, but it's also, you know, highlight that the the humanitarian system within our countries uh, has been around for a while, and so our civil society has already found their positions in some of those uh, systems, cluster systems, for example, in Fiji. Our member uh, Fiji Council of Social Services is being recognised by the Act. Uh, and so they are very much part of that, looking at uh, 
uh, the different roles and the coordination role that they play in terms of bringing civil society together to support the response, uh, as well as the uh, Vanuatu Association of NGOs. Uh, so, because during the COVID-19, there was a, a different protocol that was in place. Yeah, and it was uh, government and, and, uh, and health sector that has led that. And some countries were not using the humanitarian uh, protocol and, and the humanitarian uh, uh, system to respond to COVID. And so because of that, civil society were like lost. They couldn't find themselves in, those, in, in, this, in the system. So they couldn't find themselves because uh, although uh, the health sector, uh, Ministry of Health, uh, has been part of the different cluster in the humanitarian system, uh, but they were not known to be coordinating. They were not known to be, you know, to be to be bringing civil society in. They were they were much more into water sanitation. They were much more into a basic health uh, uh, response, uh, but not really leading any any huge response as such. Uh, but because when we had the, the COVID-19, it was not really accepted as a humanitarian crisis. It, it, was, it was just like more like a health-driven uh, response. And so that was something that I felt that it was good in a way when, when well, I shouldn't say that DC Herald was good, but because the uh, DC Herald came and so our government immediately responds by bringing back the whole humanitarian uh, protocol and processes and system that we are so familiar with. And so it has helped a lot in the response. The other one that I find is that that's probably learning that uh, you, you don't really see, I don't know how to say that, but it seems like that we are not learning because DCPAM was just like five years after, and then we see DC Herald came on board, you know, like uh, uh, the same similar struggle that our people face seems to be just repeating itself. Like we're sitting there and looking at it, and I said, "Boy, that's exactly how we did with the last time." And and for the Pacific, because of the many cyclones that we had and and, and experienced. We should be the expert in responding. But it doesn't seem to be the case when it comes to... Um, so I think, I think it, it has played a lot of uh, importance role uh, for the work that Hague and Piango and our partner in countries to continue keeping those evidence-based feature because it's not there yet. The kind of learning that we thought that we had experienced from DC PAM that it should not be repeated in DC Herald or any more cyclone that comes through. I don't know how to put it, but it just doesn't seem to be embedded. And, and I think this is where the call for the work that we do for localizations is, is a, a systemic change. Otherwise, you will just like surprise ourselves every now to respond, but then it, yeah, the community will be continue to be suffer, continue to not being responded to, continue to find their own solutions on their own. And then we couldn't find, you know, we couldn't really track where are the impact of the resources that are coming from donors and are coming from those that are development partners that are supposed to be 
improving our system every now and then when we are really doing this work. Firstly, I, I agree with you. The, the learning piece is so tricky, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the research that we have done in collaboration have highlighted um, some key areas for learning. And yes, I can sense the frustration that we don't we don't see that playing out in, in future, future disasters in the way we would like to see. I did really find what you said, though, about um, civil society perhaps having some more space in the TC Harold response. I just want to pick up on that. Yeah, just some examples of how you saw local actors either responding differently or stepping up or having a different role in that particular response because perhaps it was more locally led. It was more locally led because it was during a time where the restrictions of uh, travel uh, were still there. The fear of COVID was more, you know, a driving force to some people that wouldn't, wouldn't risk it to go out to the community. In Fiji, a lot of our international NGOs were already working from home, even us here in Pianco, that we were working from home, but then we were supporting our members here in Fiji. And the interesting thing is that we find that when it comes to a situation like that, some of us can afford to stay out, but our local actors cannot because it's it's really them. It's, It's like... They are affected, but at the same time, they are not able to sit things out because somebody has to do it. And, and so the tribe, they were, they were really at the driving force. At the same time, because our international NGOs and, and development partners who knew uh, that they have resources, but they cannot really go out, we are now starting to be open up in terms of sharing their resources. Yeah, it just has to take a, a, a pandemic as, as, uh, as difficult and compli- complicated as COVID to open up a lot of that. Yeah? How we see ourselves, the magnitude of the crisis, then people are starting to be more open-minded. And because they can't do much, uh, they have uh, organizational policies that uh, restricted them from going out because they're more about you know, um, safeguarding their, uh, their staff. But at the end of the day, our local actors cannot uh, afford to do that. They have to go out. They have to find within their means the PPE that they can uh, get. Their uh, frontliners who were going out to respond to DC Herald uh, were exposed to COVID. Some of them were, were uh, become victims of COVID. And so it's it's a it's a sad story in the sense that you know it's no longer a choice for the local actors, but at the same time it still brings to light the lack of investment in in terms of resources, and so the support from from others who put in because they can't do much but they have they know they have the resources to put in was well appreciated, but unfortunately what we see now is that they're back to normal almost. And so that, that uh, you know, sharing of resources seems to be uh, diminishing as we go. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't think that it's long-term. I, I think it's still an ad hoc as a response to the situation. Uh, I would have loved to see that it could be a long-term kind of approach in terms of how they need to see the change of 
uh, their approach in, in engaging local actors. Uh, I doubt it would be because I've already seen now that they're you know, back and up and in, in running and we are still see the uh, resources flow going back in their own direction, uh, not to how, how we would have loved to see that uh, the impact of, of the response during COVID time would have changed the system and changed the way they approach it. Like you say, some a transformative event like the pandemic, I guess we were really hoping that some of the reforms that, you know, our, our research, you know, we've been calling for, really hoping that that would push them forward and they we might see longer-term behavioural change. But it's disappointing to see that we might, the system may just be snapping back to what things were like before. That That is disappointing. Now rolling back a few years, on the 28th of September 2018, a tsunami triggered by a 7.4 magnitude earthquake devastated the coastal township of Palu in Indonesia. Immediately after the disaster, the Indonesian government set what some have called a new precedent for how international disaster response is delivered in this region. International agencies without an established presence in Indonesia were required to rethink their operations. For national and local actors, this gave a brand new scope for participation in humanitarian response. In the last episode, I caught up with Dr. Puji Pugiono from the Pugiono Centre. I caught up with Puji again to discuss the 2018 tsunami and earthquake. Well, I think that policies of the government, for whatever reason that I told you earlier, has created an environment in which there was a great shift, again, by force rather than by design, right? By the fact that government limiting the presence of international actors, it put the international actors off guard somehow. Mind you, they have been talking about localization since 2016. But when reality hits the face, just get them off guard. So our international colleagues are scrambling around and come, coming out with many different motus operandi. Now, on the part of the national and local entities like us, we are suddenly, also by force, pushed forward to the stage, ready or not ready, to assume that responsibility. And we have to cope with whatever we have and constraint and opportunities at hand, right? So what I noticed then was that there's a shift. There is a new concept that I put into practice that then put life into the narrative of localization. It put international community in a position where they have to openly disclose the way they work. Some are operating from afar remotely and they call it localization. Some are hiring locals and they call it localization. Some are, you know, nationalizing themselves and they call it localization. So localization has become so elastic, you know what I mean? And we at the local level here watching that and have to respond to that uh, disaster in Central Sulawesi in a way that uh, makes sense to us. But at the same time, it increases our bargaining position in a way. But the bitter side of it, Beth, is that our national organizations, national NGOs, will end up behaving like our international uh, NGOs because now they have to, to assume the accountability, the due diligence, all of that, right? Minus the experience over the decade and years. So we usually the emerging a new norm coming out. Now the international have to step aside and get the local to do the job. 
Now the local have to assume those responsibility and the government on the other hand need to accommodate the civil society uh, on the table and make new deals, create new space and allocate new roles for us. So the North actually, first it was a question and circumstances then give us the opportunity to reshape that norm. And that's why we call it, there's an, the, at least the emerging, nothing nonetheless, a new norm in humanitarian reform, particularly on localization. I love what you were saying about almost the un, unintended consequences and, and that how the term localization is used and may I say abused perhaps at times. And I suppose I'm interested in that context, Puji, where you had these local organisations stepping up um, and perhaps uh, being in positions and assuming different aspects of the response, as you mentioned. I wanted to ask you about what surge capacity or, or how those local agencies were able to scale up quickly. Is this something you'd seen in previous responses to the same extent or how did they manage that, you know, bringing in the numbers of people that they needed to support the response um, in, in that particular context where international agencies weren't as present? Yeah, let, let me respond first. I think the concept of search turned out rather different from the conventional one. Mind you, when I was much younger, I'm young now, but when I was much younger then, <laughs> I, was, I was part of the global search of the United Nations. And ASEAN. So I know what search uh, constitute in that conventional concept. But what we are observing in Indonesia, at least in the case of Sulawesi and other uh, subsequent disasters, was the, the broadening and heightening of the response capacity, not necessarily search as such, but the ability to mobilize in a more systematic way and a broader scale. Now, we approach this not as a... Uh, it's a natural step, if you like. This is what happened. Uh, the partnership of uh, HAC and Pujiono Center shifted from the initial snapshot study of Central Sulawesi into a more systematic and empirical-based study of localization. In the first instance, HAC is the one that signed the contract with uh, the first party. And the second round, Pujiono Center is the one who signed the contract and HAG being the supporting agency. And then after that, we do things collaboratively. This is what happened. We jointly then undertook this blueprint for change. Instead of looking at the superficial emergence of local power, we actually dive very deep into what are the foundational issues and opportunities in humanitarian reform on the ground. Right. So putting aside in the global narrative aside, and then we go dive into this and we confirm through systemic thing, uh, collective discussion with different multi-stakeholders in Indonesia, we discover a, some sort of confirmation, if you like. Coordination is an issue. Okay. Capability is an issue. Accountability is an issue. Right. Financing clearly is an issue. So this confirmed, but this time it came out from the ground. Now, out of that one, then Pujiono Center uh, capitalized on the findings of the blueprint for change to catalyze national level conversation, right? Challenging the old assumptions, offering new way of doing and perspective and so on. And in the process, we built massive network. In the response of the pandemic, we managed to have around 600 local NGOs joining the platform, right? 
in the conversation and work with the government and other stakeholders. And more lately, we elevate this network into a national coalition of development and humanitarian organization, 900 organization in seven major and largest networks in Indonesia. Now, why I'm elaborating this point, what we noticed in the process then, that power of the collective force, if you like, bring the Islamic emerging power of civil society into the circle. We brought a cross-religion, cross-sectarian power like a, a humanitarian forum of Indonesia to the game, the scientific base into the circle, you know. And this constitute not the search in the conventional notion that I shared with you earlier, but the ability for us to strengthen those networks all the way to the ground, to allow them to synergize when required, and more importantly, to be able to collectively negotiate and renegotiate civil society roles with the government, with the UN, with international partners. Enormous power that we felt right now. Now, this is, uh, this is built on the sand right now. The foundation is not really strong. We need to continue uh, strengthening this, but that is the shape is taking place, right? Now that, that constitute when and if, in the case of Indonesia, it's not if, it's actually when, right? When major disaster happen, we could at least have the belief that our network have presence everywhere. And we do have mechanisms to leverage our collective resources to the point when it is needed through our channels. In fact, now we invite international organizations, you can join us if you like. It's just so amazing how you've managed to help take civil society out of the too hard basket. I mean, I think for such a long time in humanitarian response, the usual suspects were always there, the UN agencies, Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, you know, international NGOs, and the kind of the largest piece seemed to be missing from the puzzle. And to see that um, emerging, or not emerging, just almost be just be recognised in such a strong way in Indonesia is so impressive. Do you feel that the research that we did, not just with Sulawesi, but also the blueprint work that you mentioned, how do you feel that that may have impacted on, on um, the way in which the sector is operating in Indonesia? Do you feel like that that evidence base did provide um, some foundation and some some real direction to decision makers? The research, the study that we jointly conducted, as I said earlier, provided the empirical basis. It provided the evidence to otherwise hollow narratives of localization and humanitarian reform. It's so easy to articulate humanitarian reform as strengthening the locals, to share resources. All of those mantras that over the years has been built now suddenly have to be confronted by the reality. What does it mean when it's life and breathing on the ground in Indonesia? How do you build partnership? What does it mean to be equal, for example? Our study allow us to dig deeper into the reality and the realization of this uh, narrative with what we live on a day-by-day basis, right? That's first. We cannot underestimate the meaning of the evidence to build the confidence. Now we know for a fact that many of our colleagues in Indonesia have to entertain no less than 20 or 30 international organizations who conduct organizational assessment before they actually engage. You know, how much trans- transaction costs we have to afford this? This is true because we ask the actors on the ground and they confirm. 
Now, on the basis of that, we managed to tell our international organization, you guys need to put your act together. This just takes so much from us. So how did research build the narrative as a counter or alternative narrative of what, what the conventional is very powerful. Number two, the fact that we have the advantage of having the bird eye view of the issues as a researcher, you know, regardless of what the status of your partners with INGOs or, or with the UN or with the government, we are one of a kind together as a civil society. Now that I wouldn't call it solidarity, it's just too ideological the way I look at it. We just happen to be dealing with the same situation. So we better hold hands, if you like, and sing Kumbaya if necessary. But, uh, you know, maybe you should make a joint position and talk to the government, you know. Uh, you know, um, the approach in the pandemic uh, has the risk of overlooking the vulnerable group's protection, for example. When I say myself as one person or one organization, it means nothing. But when you speak on behalf of and for 600 NGOs, somebody bound to listen, and that changed the speed. And I, lo I love what you were saying just about the, um, the accessibility of the networks and the openness that civil society have to work with other actors. And, and also this concept that if we want to support locally-led response, I know I've been thinking more recently about this. Someone said to me recently, you know, that idea of lifting all boats. Others don't need to suffer you know, other organizations are not losing. The response as a whole will be more impactful and have more, you know, be, be able to actually reach the, the people that it seeks to serve. On the 26th of February, 2018, just under eight months before the Sulawesi earthquake, a magnitude 7.5 earthquake struck the Southern Highlands province of Papua New Guinea, affecting 544,000 people. <laughs> Many organisations convened to support the earthquake response, but the remote locations of many of the communities affected made it hard to get emergency relief where it was most needed. Our very own Jessica Lees from HAG knows the space well. So in the, the PNG case, well, so I guess like taking a, a step back, um, private sector across different humanitarian responses, like there, there is a role that the private sector play across the board and that really varies depending on the type of crisis crisis in the individual context. Um, but what we were really interested to look at in, in this particular case in, in PNG was the unique role that the private sector, specifically the, the mining um, companies played. So in the Highlands and PNG, um, they do play a really unique, unique role because a lot of the areas are, are so hard to access because of the really challenging topography of the landscape, dense forest, um, not very much transport that actually gets out into these remote locations. And there's also some areas um, that suffer from some community outbreaks of outbursts of community violence. So overall, a really, really challenging context to operate, to operate in. But there are several large and medium-sized mining companies that do have pretty um, strong footholds and, and large operations in this particular area. And in some cases had much stronger operational bases and links 
compared with um, your traditional humanitarian actors, I guess. So the role that the mining sector actually played in the response um, was really one that, that was much more on the front foot and much more of, a, of an operational role that they may do than they may do in, in, other, in other cases. So, for example, actually supporting providing assets to assessments or um, supporting by hosting other organisations at their mining compounds um, and actually doing things like distributing non food items and they were able to do that because of their significant operational footprints as well as their ongoing relationships that they had built with the communities in the areas in which they operate. So because of those networks, they were actually quite well-placed to be able to gather assessment information from affected communities and then be able to feed that information in for their own response purposes as well as being able to then feed that into the humanitarian organisations assessment and response plans as well. Okay that's so interesting but although these companies have really strong community networks um, you know through some of them would have you know large um, cohorts cohorts of employees in, in that area those companies, though, have little formal training in humanitarian response um, and perhaps their understanding of humanitarian principles and approaches may be different or limited or um, just not what the humanitarian community is used to dealing with. Was that evident in 2018? Yeah, so it's 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 really interesting and a, and a bit of a challenging one in some respects because I think a lot of the time the the intention of, of these com- of these um, companies is obviously um, it very well into they're very well intentioned so the the objective is really to support the affected communities particularly as those communities are are an important stakeholder group for them so really coming with with the right with the right motives at the, at the heart of it but um, something that I guess potentially the private sector um, and, and others outside of the humanitarian sector don't recognise is that it's obviously um, a sector that does require specific skills, competencies and, and formal training to be able to understand um, what you're doing, why you're doing it and, and the best approaches to do it in the right way. So the private sector don't necessarily, haven't, haven't gone through that level of training um, and therefore don't have the same level of awareness and literacy around really important things like humanitarian principles, around do no harm, around sphere standards, and all of those important things that have been developed by the international community intentionally to be able to to better support crisis-affected populations. So there there is really a need um, for uh, humanitarian stakeholders and private sector stakeholders that do want to engage in humanitarian response to, to better work together to leverage their unique skills and cap- the unique skills and capabilities of each partner and ensure that if these private sector organisations are going to be engaging in response activities, that they're doing so in a, in a principled way that also adheres to an up- and, and upholds important standards. I so agree what you say there, Jess, about you know, the motives perhaps being the, the right ones. But I think as we've been learning in the humanitarian system over the last sort of 20 years, understanding that good intentions are not enough and actually the professionalisation of the humanitarian sector has happened for a reason, that we need people with skills, experience, uh, who are able to bring to bear the very plethora of um, standards, benchmarks, uh, and guidance that has been developed to ensure a, a really well-established uh, response. So I'm interested in, in terms of looking at what came out of that, that particular report, 
Do you think that that real-time analysis helped shape the response or has sort of helped the dialogue and the thinking in this area and, and maybe applied in future responses? Yeah, good question. I think that there um, that there was definitely some really um, positive uptake, particularly by the private sector. So some of the organisations that we had um, had interviewed as as part of the the data collection process, then actually shared the report out to all of um, their staff members and their stakeholders as well to sort of highlight the opportunities that we put forward around how the private sector can better support. Uh, more principled humanitarian action in the future. Um, I think that there is really an opportunity for the this particular paper. I mean, it's, it's very specific to the context of, of PNG. And, yeah, we did have some really good engagement in, in country as well around that. Um, but there's just the, the opportunity with all of our real-time analysis papers to be able to continue to, to, to bring them to the fore when there are these emerging crises, to be able to say, you know, we did this research back in 2018, but this is still particularly um, particularly relevant in this case study and there are still things that we can learn from and, and apply. So continuing to ensure that there is that, ensure that there is that ongoing relevance because as, as much as we like to things, think that things um, fundamentally shift in, in the space of, of the four years since we did that paper, um, there's still obviously opportunities to continue to, to reinforce those, um, those recommendations and lessons and opportunities. So something that um, will certainly need to be taken forward um, as well as there are new and emerging crises both in this region but, but elsewhere as well. COVID-19 has no doubt changed the landscape of humanitarian responses and surge models. Across the entire development nexus, the importance of accountability to local actors and communities and supporting, not dictating local responses has become paramount. Another of our HAG team members, Fanny Kusi, spoke to me about real-time analysis. They'll be only speaking from a very early stage of the research. Um, right now, looking at how humanitarian surge practices had changing or have changed since the pandemic. And um, right now we're seeing, I guess from my perspective, I'm seeing three, three main shifts or three, three shifts that we've probably took place um, a while ago, but have been emphasized or amplified with the pandemic. The first one is um, shifting the way we do search, humanitarian search, given that we couldn't access a place so we couldn't send people during the pandemic. So it's shifting from in-person uh, to remote surge. And that's that's a shift that's shifting really uh, the focus on sending people to how can we access the right skills and the right tool to feed to feed a need um, that's been identified during a, um, a crisis. So that's the first shift. The second shift is how we perceive local capacity. So obviously international surge mechanisms are there to complement local capacities and and uh, resources that are in country. However, have we looked hard enough? Have we really uh, explored all those options before we resort to international search mechanisms? And I think under the pandemic, that re the, reality, the realities on the ground have really pushed local actors to search even, even more, uh, make sure that the resources were not in, in country before they, they reached out for remote support. And we've actually seen a decrease in the demand of search overall um, 
in, in a number of contexts there, meaning that people have found a solution to their need locally before they had to, to, to reach out internationally. The last shift that we're seeing is probably about the purpose of search. So thinking a bit more about since we can't send people to do things in, in country and lead the response in country, we, we're really sending people, we're really re reaching out to, to people for the capacity to facilitate and support local actors to lead the response in country. So that's a shift in, in skills required. We're not, obviously people's uh, technical skills are very important, but we're seeing a need for the interpersonal skills, the ability to facilitate a response and work collaboratively are taking greater and greater importance in, in our context here. Thanks, Fanny. I, I love what you were saying about the soft skills. And if we're looking to understand what good practice looks like in what we hope will soon be a post-pandemic world, unpack a little bit more for me what some of those soft skills are or do you have any examples of uh, what they look like in your life? To see good practice, what we are kind of uncovering at this stage is there are a number of changes that organisation can do internally. So um, obviously, it comes down to improving the way they identify people, how they train people, how they deploy, how they monitor people, and, and having that greater insistence on soft skills or ability to work with local partners and all that. But there's also a number of challenges that are sitting at the more structural level here and things that are a bit harder to change or that, that are really going beyond the capacity of one organization. i give you an example if, if we really want to bring in more diversity about search employees, generally speaking, obviously we're not all equal here when it comes to freedom of movement. And there are those challenges around uh, like acquiring the right visa for someone to be deployed in a, in a place that, that a single organization can't necessarily overcome or uh, on its own. It's, it's obviously a bigger issue that goes beyond one organization's capacity. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting looking at not just the the, the barriers when it comes to those uh, the logistics side of things, so those the the visas and flights and permission to be able to come into country if there might be COVID restrictions as well, and then that piece around you know it doesn't matter how great your technical skills are if you're not able to work with local organisations or to forge meaningful partnerships. So I think I think that's um. I really, I mean, I feel like that's something that we've always known, but I feel like it came to the fore during perhaps the, the pandemic. And are there sort of trends that you can see from the people you've been chatting to, Fanny, when it comes to research and practice in this area? Are there other emerging themes that you feel are important? I would say everyone we're speaking to, they're really excited about the topic. They're really willing to, to find solutions and and there, there's a there's quite a I, I find um, a great awareness of the issues at stake and and the willingness to meet you know greater localization practices as well as climate change good practice as well people are more conscious of you know today we it's you need to justify putting someone on a plane and and travel um, you know the, to the other side of the earth to respond to it. To a, to a crisis when you've got obviously people on the ground and in the region that could also provide that support. So there's def definitely a, a great awareness of we need to change some of the practices and, and more thinking around how do we support local 
local actors to respond and lead the response and how we also bring in that climate con consciousness and, and practices into, into action. I'm Beth Eggleston, and you're listening to I Think You're On Mute. Join us for our next instalment looking at local leadership and the representation of local voices in the humanitarian discourse. Thank you.